just two quick announcements. Uh, one is that we will be, again, like we mentioned last week, working on our directory for Seven Mile Roads. So just attaching names, faces, contact information. So if you haven't already, catch up with Shibu. Uh, he'll take a picture of you. He's great, so he'll make you look much prettier uh, than you are. So uh, make sure you catch up with him, and he'll just collect your information so that you have that we'll hopefully have that in a few weeks uh, the other is i just want to invite uh, our church to be in prayer um, for the next season in the life of the church on tuesday we meet with the consistory of saint mark's church to just talk and pray about what the next season should be our current relationship with them is to uh, continue to serve as preaching in the morning and them hosting us in the evening till december that's when we initially talked it through so uh, we have to now think and talk about what happens after January. So just please be in prayer about that. Pray for God's wisdom, God's spirit to lead those conversations and everything involved. And trust both communities to the Lord and to his will. So let's just make sure that we pray through that. Okay, tonight we're preaching through the passage that Katie read for us in Luke chapter 10. As we head towards there, just think with me uh, here for a second just some of these stats about our world and think for a second about the planet we live on. <clears throat> on the earth, it's estimated right now that about half the world lives on about $2.50 or less every day. That works out to about 3 billion people that earn less and live on less than $912 a year. Some of us literally make a hundred times that. Some of us literally blow $912 in a week. UNICEF reports that 25,000 children die every day from poverty. That out of the millions that that adds up to over the course of a year, 1.8 million die from diarrhea. Not cancer, not AIDS, not something incurable, diarrhea. It's reported that if we took what America spends in a year on cosmetics and applied it to the world, we would be able to provide basic education for every boy and girl on the earth. That if we added to that what we spend on pet food, we'd be able to provide clean water and basic sanitation for every human being on the planet. Add to that things like human trafficking, uh, an industry that is about $35 billion market today, some 27 million men, women, and children who are in slavery, in bondage, forced. Uh, that's more than all the years of the transatlantic slave trade that we learned about in history combined. Some two million children are swept up into the sex traffic trade every year. But that's the globe, and the globe is a really big place, so let's narrow that down a little bit and bring it a little closer to home and just talk about our country, talk about America for a second. America is the wealthiest nation on planet Earth, and yet in the past few decades, the salaries of the wealthiest Americans continue to exponentially explode while the wages for lower-wage employees continue to dwindle so that America, the richest nation on earth, has the largest gap between the rich and the poor of any industrialized nation on the earth. In America, in this nation, 36 million people live in poverty. And before we can push that away as a problem of the homeless, 8.8 million of those work part-time or full-time jobs. And so one out of every four persons who are in poverty have a job, sometimes multiple jobs, and yet still find themselves in poverty. One out of eight Americans live in hunger. 47 million of them have no health insurance or access to health care. But again, the country is a very big place, so let's narrow that down again and bring it closer to home to like our doorstep and talk for a moment about our city. We live in Philadelphia. 25% of our city lives in poverty. That's one out of every four people you find in our city in poverty. Out of the 10 biggest 
cities on, in the nation, <clears throat> Philadelphia has the highest poverty rate in the country. Uh, out of those in poverty, 68% uh, come from families with a female and no husband present. So you're talking single moms or young women who are struggling to get by. One out of every three children in our city is in hunger and poverty. Okay, we could literally keep going all day with facts and with stats. And, and I guess my question is, what do you do with all that? What do you do when information like that is sort of laid out before you? I, I honestly don't know what your response is. I really don't know how you would respond to that. I imagine for some of us, if this were TV, we would have already flipped the channel and reached for another chip. I know I would have, right? Or some of us, I think you hear all that and there's just a sense of helplessness that sort of falls on your heart. I mean, you heard what we just said. This is not just a problem in our city. The entire globe is in trouble. It'd be one thing if this was Philadelphia or the U.S. or even North America. This is the entire globe. And if our half is in trouble, the other side is even worse. And so maybe helplessness creeps into your heart. Or maybe there's something in you you didn't mean to, but instinctively you're sort of defensive. You sort of guarded your hearts and maybe somehow you found your hand reaching for your wallet just to hold a little tighter because something in you feels like they're going to ask us for a collection by the end of the night. I know they're going to have some giant pledge thermometer. I hate the giant pledge thermometer, right? I hate when they guilt us into giving money. Is there a collection tonight? Or maybe that's where you're at, guilt, right? You hear all that and immediately the first thought is, I know I could be doing better. I know we're supposed to help the poor. And so maybe your mind is in one of two places. Either you're already thinking about the charities you're going to go home and write a check for tonight, or you're reviewing the places where you do give so that, look, you could do better, but you're just not that bad. You, you at least know others who do worse. Or maybe you hear all that and you're a bit angry at all the so-called evangelicals who are always talking about theology and doctrine, and it's about time we preached on some of this stuff because you're just ready to get in there and get your hands dirty and love people and serve people, and that's what the church needs. Or maybe your heart is just sweetly broken and you just you don't know what to do, but those numbers seem to hurt somewhere deep in your soul. I honestly have no idea where you're at. I think for me, if I'm honest, I'm a little bit all over the map on that. A little guarded, a little defensive, a little guilt, a little overwhelmed, a little helpless, like where do you start? But tonight we're in a passage of scripture that's going to force us to think through some of this. To think about poverty and the oppressed and the helpless and the weak. To think about things like serving and helping and mercy and compassion. And as we head towards that in the scriptures, let me just tell you where I'm at. I am incredibly grateful to God for where this sermon falls in our preaching series. Remember, we're in talks with Jesus. We're sort of hopping around the Gospels, listening in on different conversations that Jesus has with different folks. And if you were here last week, you know that we listened in as Jesus talked with a man named Matthew, a tax collector, and we saw Jesus sitting down and eating with sinners, and we cast a vision for being in a kind of community that called people to follow Jesus. That's where we were at last week. We said we're begging God that we too would be on mission like him, calling people to follow Jesus, that we're going to be a community that is welcome to sinners. Even the most broken and messed up of us, welcome here, that we're hoping that this is not a museum for the saints, but rather a hospital for sinners. That's the vision we cast last week. And on the heel of that, today we're brought to Luke chapter 10 and the parable of the Good Samaritan, a story Jesus tells to a certain expert in the law. And I'm really thankful to God for how this falls in our series. I wish I could say I had thought this up when we scripted it, but I didn't. Because I really think God wants us to hear this. And I'll tell you why. Because if the scriptures last week called us to be a community that ate with sinners and called them to follow Jesus, 
then this week the scriptures are going to call us to be a community that serves and has mercy like Jesus. If, if we're going to be a community that calls people to follow Jesus, the scriptures this week are going to call us to be a community that serves people like Jesus. Because let me tell you how this is usually played out among Christians in the church. Usually, we swing to one side or the other. And, and so there are some of us on one side. These are the folks that love theology, who just eat up doctrine. It's truth that matters to them and the proclamation of the truth. And so these guys, this team, loves ministries of the word and evangelism. They're constantly calling the church to be on mission by building relationships with people, by communicating the gospel, right? Jesus, after all, came preaching and teaching the gospel. That's what Jesus was about. And, and so this side, this team would say, listen, that's where we need to be. Communicating, proclaiming the gospel with our lips, building friendships, finding ways to share Jesus so that others might come to know him and be saved. And the bumper sticker verse for this team would be from Mark, Mark's gospel that says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? It's the soul that matters, not ultimately the body. Or you swing on the other side and there's another team, whereas this team is a little uncomfortable with words like social justice, mercy, compassion. You've got this side that's a little frustrated with all this talk of theology and doctrine. Because they want to say, listen, it's not about words, it's about deeds. Forget what you proclaim with your lips, what are you doing with your hands and your feet and your lives? And so this team loves ministries of mercy and compassion and social justice. After all, Jesus was about the poor and the oppressed and women. That's where you would find Jesus. And so we need to be a church that's getting our hands dirty and living with and among and serving the most weakest and oppressed and the poor. And, and this side's bumper sticker is the verse from James that says, If you see a brother that has no clothing... And you say to him, be well and be warm. What good is that if you do not provide for the needs of the body? And James will say, because faith without works is dead. Can you see where you might lean? I know I do. And I think God gave us these sermons one after the other. Because guys, it's not either or, but both and. Both and. Ministry of the word and ministry of deeds. Ministry to the soul and ministry to the body. Jesus has come to redeem your soul and Jesus has come to redeem the whole earth and make all things new. We're not talking one or the other, we're talking both and. Heads and tails of the same coin, right hand, left hand, working together. We need both ministry of evangelism and proclamation of God's truth and the ministry of compassion and mercy, lives that are living out God's truth. We need both. And so even here in our community, if we've got guys like me who lean to the evangelism mission soul side, we need you to pull me. We need guys like Dennis or all the Eastern folks, this is their entire education, right, who love mercy and compassion to pull us and say, brother, it's not just proclamation of the word. What are you doing with your life, with deeds? And, and we need those of us who are on evangelism to call the other folks who are about mercy to pull them and say, it's not just what you do with your hands, but the proclamation of your lips, the gospel in word and in deed, mission through calling people to follow Jesus and calling people and serving them like Jesus. That's where we're headed. So let me pray and then we'll look at this story that Jesus tells a certain expert in the law. If you have your Bibles, you can keep them open to Luke 10, 25 to 37. We're going to be going through that sort of verse by verse. Luke 10, 25 to 37. Let me just pray and then we'll look at this passage together. Father, we come in the name of Jesus Christ and we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would make us faithful now in both the preaching and the hearing of your word. 
that both would be done well, that both would bear fruit, that both would bring glory to your name. We ask that you would cut us to the heart even now by your word and produce in us right repentance, right faith, and cause that to flow in obedience. Do this, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 25, this is how the conversation starts. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, when you've got lawyer in this text, don't think law and order kind of law or legal kind of law. When this text, this passage is talking about lawyer, it's talking about a man who's an expert in the law. Not legal law, but Jewish religious law. So this is a man who's given himself over to the study of God's law. He's a religious expert, sort of like a Pharisee. That's what the text means when it says a lawyer. So a religious leader, an expert, an expert in the law, comes to Jesus. And the text also tells us the motivation in his heart that brings him to Jesus. He's come to test him. He's got a question, but it's not a sincere question. It's sort of to trap Jesus, to trip up Jesus. If you've read through the Gospels, you'll find right away that Jesus' biggest struggle is always with the religious folks, the moral people, the religious leaders. They're always the ones who are coming to trip Jesus up, to trap him, to get him to misspeak, to say something he should not say, so they can pounce on him and say, Ha-ha, you messed up. That's the heart of this guy as he's coming. And you read through the Gospels, and maybe this guy, like the other religious leaders, has seen Jesus eat with sinners, fellowship with people who break the law, and so maybe they figure Jesus doesn't have a high view of God's law. Maybe we're going to get him to misspeak about God's law, to diminish it. Like they're after him saying, asking questions, so maybe they can hear him trash God's law or diminish it. Like, what do I need to inherit eternal life? And maybe Jesus is going to say something like, you know, just try and be good. Just try and be nice. Downplaying God's law. So they're trying to trip him up. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to test him. That's the motive that comes in this man's heart. And, and so he goes to Jesus. He stands up and he says, Teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? That polite address teacher is about as sincere as Judas's kiss. Because this man is here asking this question to test Jesus. This is how Jesus responds. Verse 26. He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Okay, think about this for a second. This man comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? How do you read it? Why does he say that? Now, I read this and it seems to me like Jesus has wasted a perfect opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Right? Aren't you and I begging God for opportunities like this one where someone in Philadelphia would come to me and say, Brother, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And I've memorized the answer. I'm ready to go the second he says it. I'm going to say, you are in sin. You were born depraved and God's wrath is on you. And Jesus has come to absorb that wrath and die for your sins in your place. And you can be washed in him, repent and believe the gospel and you'll have eternal life. I'm ready. But Jesus doesn't go there. It seems like Jesus has wasted an opportunity because he says, what does the law say? Why? Well, Jesus sees something in this lawyer's heart through this lawyer's question. And before this man will ever start trusting in Jesus for salvation, Jesus needs him to stop trusting in himself for salvation. Before this man is ever going to trust in Jesus for his salvation, Jesus needs to expose that right now he's trusting in himself for salvation and he's got to start there. And so Jesus says, what does the law say? How do you read it? And this man responds 
with a perfect summary of the law. You know it's right because Jesus says you've answered rightly. He gives this perfect summary of the law. He says, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The man's right. If you took every book of the Old Testament, every word, every sentence, every page, from Genesis to Malachi, you sum the whole thing up, it would essentially be a call to love God and love people. That's the heart of it. If you boil 600-something laws in the Old Testament, if you boil it all down to what it's really getting after, the man's right. It's about loving God and loving those whom God loves, loving people. Love the Lord your God wholly, totally, with everything you've got, and love people as yourself. Now, when this man said this summary of the law, he's asked, what does a man need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what does the law say? He gives the summary. Love God, love people. What should have happened is this man should have just stopped, paused, just stopped in his tracks and said to Jesus, who can do that? I mean, he should have heard the words of the law, what God requires for eternal life, and he should have just been stopped in his tracks and says, who can do that? This law is supposed to crush his self-righteousness. It's supposed to show him who can do that. What he should have been saying is, Jesus, how can anyone inherit eternal life that way? Right? Because who can love God with all his heart? All, total. That means every inclination of your heart, all your emotions, all your passions, every affection of your heart to God all the time. And all your soul and strength, that's everything of your inner being, your strength, your abilities, your talents, everything you've got to God all the time. With all your mind, so every bit of your reasoning capacity, every bit of your thought life for God and towards God all the time. So that when you're sitting alone with nothing to do, your mind is automatically going to God, not because you have to, but because you so love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Every being, every bit of your being pointed to God at all times. Who can do that? And if that wasn't enough to crush the man's self-righteousness, you add to that and then love your neighbor as yourself. So with all the fervor and intensity and speed and all the resources in which you love yourself, so love someone else. With all the care and attention and detail you put into preserving your health, your wealth, your well-being, so be about someone else. Love your neighbor as yourself. What should have happened is this man should have said these two words and said, Jesus... Who can do that? Right? Jesus responds, You have answered correctly, verse 28, Do this and you will live. And the man should have said, Live! Jesus, if this is what it takes, I'm dead! And he should have said, Please tell me there's another way to inherit eternal life. And of course there is. And if Jesus had gotten him there, maybe then Jesus would have said what Paul says in Galatians 3, 20, 3, 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified by works of the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. And maybe then Jesus would have explained, listen, this is what God requires, but it will ultimately be by faith and not works. Because no one is justified by works of the law. And maybe Jesus would have said, I've actually come to die and resurrect, and those who have faith in me shall have eternal life. This is what the law is supposed to do to us. Right? You're supposed to see this vision for life given to you by God. This is the way God designed life to work. In full love towards God and in full love towards people. That's the vision for life. That's the way life was designed to work. And once you see that vision, as beautiful and breathtaking as it is, it's supposed to crush your self-righteousness and crush every bit of you that thinks you can pull it off and cause you to despair in yourself so that you're crying out, mercy, show me another way. Romans 3 verse 20 is right, which says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. 
by, by works of the law, no one gets justified. No one gets declared right before God through the law. No one gets declared right because no one can pull it off. He, he should have gotten, no one can do this. But justifying himself is exactly what this man is trying to do. Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? What's he doing? You see, instead of allowing God's law to crush his self-righteousness, in Jesus' presence, he's actually trying to establish it. He's trying to show his righteousness. He's trying to justify himself. That he has what it takes. That he actually can pull it off. He's trying to justify himself before Jesus. So essentially he's saying, first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Check. No problem. And now he wants to be able to do the same thing with the second. And love your neighbor with yourself. And what he's getting ready to do is say, check. No problem. Eternal life. Here I come. Desiring to justify himself, he said, and who is my neighbor? All he needs is for Jesus to sort of unpack and define for him who neighbor is. Right? Neighbor is a pretty broad, generic term. And what he's asking is, Jesus, just help me define that a little bit. Right? Just establish the boundaries or the fence of who falls into neighbor so that I can then say, check. Done that. Pat myself on the back and go my way. Jesus just has to put some names and faces to that category neighbor so that he can be on his way, right? He's basically asking, who's my neighbor? Who falls in there? And he's just waiting for Jesus to say something like, love your parents and love brothers and sisters, love the Jewish people, love your Pharisees. And of course, he would have been able to say, check, 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 right? He's an expert in the law. That means he tithes, he gives to the poor, he loves his parents. He's just ready for Jesus to define, to put some names and faces to neighbors so he can say, all set. To put it the other way, he might even be saying, who's not my neighbor, right? Who falls outside of that that I don't have to worry about? Who falls in so that I can be all set? And so he asks, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And the brilliant teacher from Nazareth gives a story to respond to his question. Verse 30. Jesus answers this way. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now you got to know that this is an actual journey that people in that day would take. So when Jesus is telling the story, he knows exactly where Jesus is talking about Jerusalem was high above sea level, Jericho was not. So it literally was a road down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It, it's a journey that took about 17 to 18 miles. It was a very rocky terrain with lots of caves, which made perfect hideouts for thieves, for robbers, for bandits. In fact, that road was nicknamed the Pass of Blood because great Danger came to those who traveled along that path, right? It was called the Pass of Blood because everybody knew that is a dangerous place. The modern day equivalent would be the darkest, nastiest alley of Philly at around midnight, right? So that's what Jesus is talking about. A man was walking in a very dark alley in the worst part of the city. And if you're walking in that place, you've got one thought on my mind. Please don't let me get mugged. Please don't let me get mugged. Please don't get, let me get mugged. And so the worst thing that could happen, happens. He falls in the hands of some robbers and some thieves who jump on him, strip him, beat him, take all of his stuff, and leave him there lying in a ditch, dying. Verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. Now just for a second. If you're hearing this story for the first time, if you're the lawyer or you're someone in the crowd... For a second, you're pulled into Jesus' story, and now you breathe a sigh of relief because a priest is walking by. If you're hearing this for the first time, you know that a priest's occupation was 
to help the poor, to give alms, to distribute. This is what a priest was supposed to do. So if you're hearing the story for the first time, Jesus says, now it happened. Or by chance, a priest was walking down. And so the thought in your mind was, man, this man has fallen on some hard luck, but at least now his fortunes have changed because a priest is coming down the road. But of course, if you know the story, you know it doesn't go well. Verse 31, Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Two religious men, two men whose life, whose occupation was to serve people, to minister to people, to show God's love and mercy to people, and they come by and they pass him by. They walk by and they just keep on walking. In fact, the text adds the detail that they don't just walk by him. They sort of pass by on the other side. Like that they see him lying on a ditch on the side of the road and they cross the street to go to the other side to get as far away from him as they can and they keep on walking. Now, if you're familiar with this story, you know enough, you've been taught since you were little to know these are the bad guys the bad priest and the bad Levite who left this man lying in a ditch, dying on the side of the road. But what I want to say to you is before we're too hard on these guys, think about it for a second. I mean, we'll ignore the fact that literally I do this every time I'm in the city, right? We don't, I don't just walk around people lying in the city. I walk over them. I walk completely on the other side of the road. You can't walk in Philadelphia many of us, without literally doing what these guys did. But we'll put that to the side. Just think about this for a moment from their lens. Because I, I want to say they had reasons, as valid as yours or mine, for why they did what they did. Right? If you find a man lying, naked, bleeding, half dead, on the side of the road in the most bad part of town, it just confirms what you already know, that this is a bad part of town. Right? Why are you going to stop by? Because who knows if they're just waiting around the corner to see who they can pluck off next. I mean, there's immense danger, immense risk if these guys are going to stop and get involved. Who knows if they will be mugged, left half dead on the side of the road. And what if they've got families to go home to and take care of? There's incredible risk involved. Not only that, they had responsibilities to fulfill. In fact, religious responsibilities. The Old Testament had this law that if a priest or a Levite, someone in that ministry, touched a dead person, Leviticus 21, then they became ceremonially unclean for a week. So if this guy was dead, they risked being defiled and being put back a week from fulfilling the obligations that were on them. They, they were religious leaders. Like, what would it be like for you if today, because of something you did, you weren't even expecting, you were put back an entire week from all the work and all the things that are on your plate? Like, how would that work here? Sibby is our worship guy. We have nobody else right now who plays the guitar. And already I'm thinking, when are we going to give him a break, right? In the months that are coming, I have no other option. What am I going to do if he doesn't show up one Sunday? We're going to have Dennis sing, right? I mean... We've got no options. This guy has responsibilities to fulfill. How's he going to fulfill them? And not only that, he's going to be ceremonially defiled. So that means he's got to go back to Jerusalem, the where he was coming from, buy a heifer or an ox or something to sacrifice, perform the sacrifices, stand with the sinners, confess his sin. He's got much cost to bear if he's going to get involved. Incredible risk incredible cost and let's just not forget the obvious who knows how much time how much energy how much effort how much money is going to be at stake if you do get involved what i'm saying is we can't be too hard on him too quick because whatever reasons we've got they had maybe they thought to themselves listen there are a million people lying in ditches on the side of the road in this city and what's it going to help if i risk my life to help this one. That's not going to change anything. Or maybe they thought to themselves, listen, I just don't have the resources to help. I, I, don't, I can't afford to take care of him. 
right? Levites in that day didn't make much money. This wasn't a big money profession being involved in ministry. And so what if they thought to themselves, listen, I just don't have the resources. If I was rich, I would definitely do it. But I myself am just getting by. How am I going to stop and spend on him? What if they thought to themselves, listen, helping is dangerous, maybe even irresponsible. Because who's going to take care of my family should something happen? It's irresponsible to help. I don't know. I'm just saying I can relate because whatever reasons they have, have crossed my mind a million times. And so what they do is they cross over to the other side of the street and walk on by. And then the story takes this crazy twist, this crazy left turn. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus throws in a Samaritan into the story, and he says, and he had compassion. I don't know if you hear the scandal of what Jesus just said. Jesus said, a Samaritan passed by, and he had compassion on him. If you're the lawyer hearing Jesus' story for the first time, as soon as Jesus says, and a Samaritan was passing by, the first thought in your mind is, what good is that mutt going to do? Right? If you were here when Reed Monahan preached Jacob's Well, as Jesus interacted with the Samaritan woman, you remember hearing the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. Jews hated Samaritans. They saw them as half-breeds who were defiled. Right? When, when the Pharisees wanted to sort of mock Jesus, defile, disrespect Jesus in John 8, they say, you're a Samaritan, aren't you? I mean, that was their curse word. They were ethnically different, culturally different, racially different, even religiously different. They had taken good God and had perverted a theology around him. They didn't believe as they did. In every way, this was the most hated person. So think about that. Jesus picks the most hated person in the Jews' world, in the lawyer's mind, and he makes him the hero of the story. Think of that. That's like if Jesus were here in Philly, he'd, he'd say, and A-Rod walked by, right? Or, or more seriously, if this was the 1800s and you're preaching in a white church, Jesus would have said, and a slave walked by. Or I don't know how he would have crafted the story today. It, like if he came to an evangelical church. Maybe he would have said, a Christian was lying in a ditch, dying on the side of the road, and a pastor walked by. And he crossed the other side of the street and kept walking. And a worship leader passed by, and he crossed the other side of the street, and he kept walking. And then Jesus says something like, and then a Muslim came. Or, and then an atheist came. Or, and then a lesbian came. And she got out of her car and she went to him and got in the dirt and bound his wounds. And she put him in her car and drove him to the hospital. And she paid the bill and she said to the doctor, here's my credit card. Whatever else is required, you can put it on me. You see, this man has come to Jesus to say, love your neighbor, check. And Jesus picks the most hated person in the man's life and he makes him the hero of the story. And he says, you want to talk about fulfilling God's commands, love your neighbor. And with this story, Jesus exposes the hatred in this man's heart. So much so by the end of the parable, Jesus says, which of these was a neighbor to them? And the man can't even say the Samaritan. He says, the one who showed mercy. I mean, his lips won't even say the Samaritan was the good guy. He says the one who showed mercy. Jesus is exposing through his parable the hatred for his neighbor that lied in this man's heart. So then who is it in our society, in our day, that Jesus would say to you and it would just make your stomach turn? 
Like who would Jesus make and paint in a good light and make the hero of the story that would just make your stomach turn? Maybe it's race, right? Like he says, and then a black kid walked by. Or maybe it's religion, and then a Muslim walked by. Or a Hindu walked by. If you're a conservative, and then a liberal walked by. They're the ones that are ruining our country. Or if you're a liberal and then a conservative walk by, they're the ones that are holding back our country. Or, or for some of you, maybe it's people from your church that you grew up who just don't get it like you do. And you would just be so bothered if Jesus painted them in a good light. This man starts the conversation with the question, who is my neighbor? And, and what he's trying to do is, Jesus, throw up a fence for me to tell me who falls in. And Jesus blows the whole thing wide open and says, your neighbor is anyone you are in a position to help. Anyone. Regardless of race or creed or ethnicity or culture or religion, they may never believe what you believe, even about Jesus. And your neighbor is anyone you are in, in a position to help. And God calls you to be a neighbor to them. <coughs> Think about that. Because that's where the story ends, right? The conversation begins with the man saying, who is my neighbor? But listen to how Jesus ends it. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed mercy. This man starts, who is my neighbor? Jesus ends with, what kind of neighbor are you? This man starts with, tell me who my neighbor is. And Jesus says, don't ask who your neighbor is, but rather ask, what kind of neighbor are you? Who was a neighbor to this man? What kind of neighbor are you? That's the question. Your neighbor is anyone you are in a position to help, and you are a neighbor if you respond with mercy and compassion. And Jesus ends the parable saying, so go and do likewise. Let me just give you three quick comments and then we'll quit. So you get to the end of this parable and I just want to say three things about it. One, we're a very immature church when it comes to mercy and compassion. And part of that is because we're just a few weeks old, I get that. Part of that I want to confess to you is because I am very immature when it comes to mercy and compassion. And I want you to hear this seven mile road. If we are going to be faithful in mercy and compassion, I need your help. I need you who have a heart for this to pull me along and to say to me, brother, let us not forget the poor. Proclamation, mission through words is important, but brother, let us not forget mission through deeds. I need you to keep that in the forefront of this church so that we do not forget the poor. All week I'm opening God's word and what it's doing is opening me and exposing in me the heart that does not break for the poor. As I'm studying all throughout the scriptures, you see this concern for the poor everywhere. In God's laws to Israel is this concern for the poor. Even in the way they're harvested, they're supposed to do so in a way that the poor can be provided for. And then you keep reading in your Bible and you get to Jesus. And just think of this. You have imaginations. You have all kinds of time with your mind. Just think of this for a little while. Jesus could have incarnated into the world any way he wanted to. And he chooses to come into the class of the poor. Why? Like, if I was doing the incarnation, I would think, become the son of the king or the high priest kid, or some rich person's son, so that you could use your money, your wealth, your status to do good work. <clears throat> Jesus is born into a family that can't even afford what was due for the offerings. They had to sacrifice pigeons because they couldn't buy a lamb. I mean, he could have came into this world any way he wanted to, and he identifies with the poor. And then you see the birth of the church, from Acts 2 onwards, their concern is for the poor. They're always sharing their possessions so that none in their midst are in need. I won't say much, but listen, there are people at Seven Mile Road who have lost jobs, who are struggling, who are going through financial struggles, 
And I just think the passage has something to say to what kind of community we are going to be. In fact, if you study history, the early church was known for its concern for the poor. I was pointed to a letter from some emperor named Julian who was really struggling with the fact that Christianity was spreading everywhere and he was really ticked about it and he wrote a letter saying, I know why, it's because the Christians take care of all the poor. He said, not only do they take care of their poor, they take care of ours as well. That's why it's spreading. The Christian church was always known, marked by concern for the poor. Listen, you cannot be a Christian without a heart for the poor. You just can't. If you're receiving eternal life, it's going to show itself in a heart for the poor. I read something this week that was really instructive to me, which was, when you see someone like me who doesn't have it, and, and the writer was saying what the Spirit does is it sort of pushes a button, that within the heart of every Christian is a heart that sleeps dormant with a love for the poor. And what the Spirit needs to do is, through the proclamation of the Word, push that button. And this week, I feel the Lord pushing my button. And I'm asking you, is the Spirit doing that to you today? Is He pushing your button, causing to come alive, to be awakened, a dormant heart for the poor? Second, maybe you hear all this, and there's a part of you that still feels helpless. Like you hear all this and you go, you haven't helped the Jay by unpacking what it means to love your neighbor. It's still impossible. Right? Who's going to be this kind of person? Jesus says, go and do likewise. That is, go and be the kind of people that see someone lying on a ditch by the side of the road and you stop and you put them in your car and take them to the hospital and pay the bills. Who can be that kind of person? Who can do that? If you feel that helplessness, good. Because the parable is having its intended effect. Remember, Jesus tells this story to a man who was ready to say, love God, check, love my neighbor, check. And this story was given to him to stop him in his tracks and say, God, in light of your commands, I'm the one who's poor. I'm the one who's impoverished and in poverty. I cannot live up to your commands. You see, these commands, these laws, were not given to produce a kind of behavior. Any one of us could feed the poor on a weekend. We could check off a behavior. But the law was given to produce in you a character. A, a character. The one that spontaneously acts in mercy every time. And when you hear that that's what the law is after, you go, who can inherit eternal life that way? You feel helpless to be this kind of person. If that's you, good. Let God's law and the unpacking of it humble you so that you right now stand like the man should and say, I can't do that perfectly. But third, and we'll stop here, though it should leave you despairing of your righteousness, it should also give you great hope because within the story itself are the resources, the power for you to actually go and do likewise. Let me say that again. Within the story is the resources and the power so that you too might actually go and do likewise. Jesus purposely puts the enemy on the donkey and you in the ditch, right? The Jewish man's in the ditch. His enemy is on the donkey. Why? Because only if you have experienced that kind of mercy will you also become a person of mercy. Like if you were lying at the side of the road in a ditch, half naked, bleeding to death, and someone came and showed mercy to you, the next time you pass someone lying in a ditch, there's a much greater chance you too will serve and help. Because you've received such mercy, so you can show such mercy. This is what the gospel is. The gospel shows us that we, spiritually, are this poor. That in light of what God requires, we're the ones lying in a ditch. We're the ones who are half naked and dead. And then the one who is our enemy, Romans says, we were at enmity with God. The one who is our enemy comes by the road and sees us lying in a ditch, covered in our own blood. And he should have not just walked around us, but stepped on us. And yet he stops. 
And He comes to us and picks us up out of the ditch and binds and washes our wounds and clothes our nakedness and makes us well. When you see yourself in that poor estate, then you can say, go and do likewise. When you've experienced that kind of mercy in your soul, then it can transform you to become a person of mercy and compassion. Guilt will only last you so long. It'll dry up quick. It'll make you do a behavior, but it won't change your character. And that's what God's after. God wants to show you such incredible mercy so that you too can become a person of mercy. When you see yourself lying in the ditch and you see your enemy coming to save you, then you can hear Jesus' words, go and do likewise. So a community that calls people to follow Jesus and a community that serves people like Jesus. That's what we're after. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would cut our hearts with the word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would produce in us, even today, even now, repentance. There are some of us who have not seen the poverty of our spirits and our souls. And like the man in the story, where we need to start is we're still trying to justify ourselves. We're still trying to say we've got it right and we've got what it takes to come before you. Would the first thing you do tonight be to cut us to the heart and show us that spiritually we are poor, poverty, lying on the side of the road in our sin, dead, and we still relate to you as an enemy. And even tonight, would you come in grace and mercy and compassion and pull such men and women out of their ditches and show them the cross that our enemy God becomes our friend and our father and our savior and the lover of our souls. That you pass by our road. In fact, you left heaven to walk that road so that you might show mercy to us. Do that today. And for those of us who have come to know you, break our hearts as you would. Give to us a concern for mercy and compassion. I pray that a vision of the mercy and compassion of Christ would move us to become merciful, compassionate people. Hear my prayer, Lord, mature seven mile road in how we live the gospel and how we proclaim it. Answer this prayer much better than I know to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.